When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may take my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I can almost imagine what Abram was thinking. He's messed up again, and he's, he's probably convinced himself that God's done with him. Not trusting God by lying to Pharaoh about Sarai was one thing, but taking things into his own hands, as we saw last week, using a merely human solution to solve his problems was another. Having a baby with Hagar definitely crossed the line. There's just no way that God's going to keep his promises to him now. I mean, place yourself in Abram's sandals. What would you have been thinking? I mean, it's been 13 years since the birth of Ishmael, and there's no sign in the text that God's heard from Abram at all, or that Abram's heard from God at all. In the midst of the silence, I'm sure that Abram's thinking that God's given up on him. I mean, he's had his chance, and he's just blown it. There's no way that God's going to remain committed to him. I mean, by now, God has gone out, and surely he has found someone who's going to be faithful. He's found someone who's, who's going to be worthy of all of these great promises that God's made to him. Abraham had his, chance, his choice, but he just couldn't get his act together. I mean, these would definitely be thoughts running through my mind. What about for you? What would be going through your mind? Perhaps for you, it's really not too hard to wonder what would be going through Abram's mind because the truth is they're the very thoughts that have been going through your head all morning or all week. Like Abram, you failed again and you're wondering, how is God going to respond? Or maybe even, is God going to respond? 
I mean, the first couple of times that you messed up, I mean, they, they weren't too bad. It's not that big of a deal. Surely you haven't placed yourself outside of God's circle of favor. But this latest failure, it's just too big, or it's just happened one too many times for God to continue to care for you, for God to be committed to keeping his promises to you. Well, whatever was going through Abram's mind, the truth is, this is, a, this is a very live issue for all of us. This is something that we all wrestle with. In the midst of our struggles and our failures, we're all prone to question, we're all prone to wonder, is God going to keep his promises to me? Is God still committed to me, or have I found myself on the outside looking in? In the midst of these very real questions and many others like them, God has given us this passage to assure us that in the midst of our struggles and our failures, that he's not going to give up on us. This passage gives us assurance that in in the midst of our ups and downs, that God's promises towards us aren't conditional. They're not dependent upon our behavior because they're based on who God is for us. So as we continue this morning, we want to, we're going to take a look at God's interaction with Abram in a, in a bit more detail, and then I'd like to draw out a couple of those implications for us. So as chapter 17 begins, it's been 13 years since the birth of Ishmael, and for all we know, Abram hasn't heard from God. At this point, he's in a serious spiritual nosedive. I mean, weighed down by guilt and shame over, over everything that's happened with Hagar, Perhaps he's even angry and bitter with God that it's been so long and he hasn't held up his end of the bargain. We see Abram, Abram here and he's all but given up hope that he's going to have a son by Sarai. And it's in the midst of these dark circumstances that we're told that God appeared to Abram. What a beautiful picture of God's grace in this passage. In the midst of Abram's repeated failures and screw-ups, God still remains committed to him. God continues pursuing Abraham, and he won't let him go. And what's even more incredible is what we see when God appears to Abram. You see, the text doesn't show God rebuking or correcting Abram for his disbelief. I'm sure in the intervening years, Abram did enough of that to himself. But when God appears to Abram, he doesn't highlight his failures, but he doubles down on his promises. Up to this point in the Genesis narrative, God's promised Abram that he's going to have a, he's going to have a great name. He's going to, to be a blessing. He's going to have many children, as many as the stars in the sky. And here, after Abram's shown himself to be completely unworthy of these promises, God appears to him and ups the ante making even bigger promises to him. We see this in our passage in the incredibly important act when God changes his name from Abram, which means the exalted father, singular, to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. Because now God's promise to Abram isn't just that he's going to be a great nation, but that nations and kings will come from him. Here we see that God also changes Abraham's wife's name from Sarai to Sarah. Both names mean princess, but Sarah seems to suggest an an elevation of her status as God also promises that she is going to bear a son and that nations and kings will also come from her. Let me just pause here. Can Can you imagine what this would have meant to Abraham? 
His wife, Sarah, who he loves with all of his heart, who's constantly looked down upon and despised by those around her because she can't have any children. She's now going to be the one through whom nations and kings come from. This is more than anything Abraham could have asked for. And I'm sure that all of this would have been enough, but as the story continues, we see that God's not done. Because in addition to these great promises, we see that God commits himself to Abraham. You see, up to this point, God has promised to do many things for Abraham. All of these, these promises that we've, that we've heard, that we've read. But here, God now promises and shows Abraham what he's going to be for him. Not just, I'm going to do these things for you, but this is who I'm going to be for you. In this passage, we see that God promises Abraham and his children that he is going to be their God. And they are going to be his people. No matter what they do, no matter how faithful they are or they aren't, he promises himself to them. He's going to stick with them through thick and thin. What amazing and comforting promises. God comes in his grace and gives to Abram, who has been beating himself up for these last 13 years, just thinking that he can't get his act together. And God in his grace comes and just gives him and makes these amazing promises to him. But I can only imagine that just as all of this starts to sink in, that that little voice in the back of Abram's head starts whispering. How do you know that this is actually going to happen? I mean, how many years has it been since God first appeared to you and made these original promises to you and Sarah still doesn't have a baby? How can you be sure that things are going to be different this time? Have you ever been there? Questioning God's promises to you when, when life's not turning out like you thought it would? I'm just thinking for Abram, it's been 24 years since God first appeared to him and promised him all these wonderful things he's going to do. But up till now, he doesn't have much to show for it. Sure, he, he's grown in power, he's increased in, in possessions, his, his tribe has increased. But the one thing that he desires more than anything else in the world his wife Sarah, to have a child, still hasn't happened. And now it seems like it's out of the picture for good. And it's at just this time as that little voice in his head is whispering, God in his kindness we see gives Abraham a sign. He gives him a sign to confirm his promises to him, to remind Abraham of all that he's just promised him. He gives him a sign that will assure him that he's going to do everything that he said. That's what this whole circumcision thing is about. God tells Abraham to circumcise every male in his household from eight days up as a sign, as a promise of God's promises to him. You see, for Abraham and for all of Israel to follow throughout the generations, circumcision was an outward sign that represented and confirmed God's promises to all of those who received it. In circumcision, the people were being marked out. They were being identified as those who have received God's promises. And in receiving the sign, they're showing that they're part of God's chosen people, that they're part of the covenant community. Circumcision was a sign given to remind the people of who God was and who God was for them. This sign, circumcision, gave them hope in the midst of when their circumstances seemed dark, 
when they were tempted to question again, is God going to do what he's promised? This sign of circumcision assured them, it gave them hope that God would do what he's promised. And as the story continues, there's this tension as we wonder, is, God, is Abraham going to obey God? Will he believe this incredible news and in faith receive the sign, or is he going to turn and in yet another display of unbelief, refuse to obey God's word? Because more than merely an outward sign for Abraham to be circumcised, for him to have the hundreds of males in his tribe circumcised, it would have been a great display of his faith. It would have been a display of his trust in God to keep his promises. Because we're not going to go into any details here, but the act of circumcision wasn't something that you would willingly volunteer for. No one was raising their hands or jumping to the front of the line for this. For Abraham to receive his sign, it would have been a clear indicator of his trust in God and his trust in God's promises. And so we wonder, what is he going to do? As the story continues, it seems at first that Abraham's not going to do it. It seems like he's still not completely convinced that Sarah's going to have a son. We see this in verse 18 when Abraham asks God, why can't Ishmael live before you? In his doubting, looking at his, currently, at looking at his current situation through merely human eyes, he appeals to God saying, why can't Ishmael be the one that you use to fulfill your promises? Why can't he be this promised son? And here again, we see God's grace towards Abraham. Because rather than taking him by the shoulders and just shaking at him, yelling at him, why won't you trust me? Why won't you just believe my promises to you? We see God in his grace, in his kindness, just stoop down to Abraham. He stoops down to him and in his patience, aware of Abraham's weaknesses and doubts, he whispers to him. He says, you are going to have a son. Sarah herself will have a son. But he doesn't stop there. Because he tells, he tells Abraham that not only is Sarah going to have a son, but his name's going to be Isaac, and oh yeah, he's going to be born in a year. Wasn't God so patient and gracious with us? It certainly seemed to be the case in Abraham's life because this was the news that Abraham needed to hear. Because the next thing that we see is Abraham responding in faith to God and his word as the chapter closes with Abraham and his whole house receiving this sign of circumcision, displaying his trust in God. So that's our story, Genesis chapter 17. But we, need to ask us, but we need to ask, why did God give it to us? Why did the Holy Spirit lead Moses to include this story in our Bibles? And friends, there are a lot of things going on here. But I believe that God's given us this account to increase our assurance that in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our failures, that God's not going to give up on us. God is going to remain faithful, and he's going to keep his promises. Just think, this is certainly what it would have meant for the nation of Israel, the first readers of this account, of this story. As Moses writes this story and they receive it, they find themselves wandering around the desert, wondering their status before God as they failed yet again. Time after time, they have failed yet again, and they're wondering, 
Is God going to be faithful? Is he going to keep his promises? And God in his grace tells them this story about Abraham to increase their assurance. I think this story gives us two reasons that we we can take home, two reasons that we can, can take to the bank, as it were, that we can seal up in our hearts for why we can have assurance that God is going to remain faithful to us. The first reason is because of God's gracious character. Like all of Scripture, this passage is most concerned with revealing who God is to us, showing us who he is and what he's like. And here we see a wonderful picture of our gracious God. As we read in verse 1, it says, when, Abraham, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appears to Abram and said to him. In the midst of Abraham's repeated failures, we see that God's still committed to him. He hasn't left him or abandoned him. And isn't it so encouraging, friends, that God meets us at the bottom? God comes to Abraham at his lowest point and shows him grace. He doesn't repeat his failures over and over again, but he invites him to come close and to hear his promises yet again. And church, that's God's invitation to all of us this morning. God's not waiting for us to get our acts together as if that's even possible on our own. But because of what Jesus has done for us in his life, in his death and resurrection, God's inviting all of us to meet him at the bottom, to come close to him and to receive his grace. Is this normally how you think about God relating and responding to you? For so much of my Christian life, and it's something I have to fight against today, I just walk around with this barometer in my head uh, that's constantly displaying God's mood towards me. On any given day, it can fluctuate from God's approval of me to God is angry with me and anywhere and everywhere in between. On the days that I'm doing good, I read my Bible, I'm, I'm kind to those around me, I'm not sinning in any obvious way, that little barometer's ticked over to God's happy with me, God has approved of me. But on the days I mess up, when I, when I fail to have my quiet time, when I'm impatient with my kiddos, when I'm insensitive to Donna, when I don't do what I'm supposed to do, that little barometer just ticks right over to God's angry with me, God is angry and God is distant from me. Do you, you, you wear this inward barometer in your head telling you that God's either angry or that God's happy with you, he's disappointed with you, or he's pleased with you, and it's just constantly going back and forth depending upon how you're doing, basing our standing before God on, on what we do and what we don't do? Well, the good news here, the grace of this passage, what we see here is that it calls us to take our eyes off of ourselves and it calls us to look to who God is and to see that he's not going to give up on us because God's approval of us, God's responding to us isn't dependent upon us, but it flows from who he is and what he's done for us. God's interaction here with Abraham shows us that God is, is always approved of us. We are never too far from his grace, but we have assurance of who he is for us because of what Jesus has done. Now, before moving on to our, our second point, I couldn't help but think about how this assurance that we have from God should change how we relate to one another. You see, you see God's assurance frees us to be open and honest with each other about our weaknesses and our struggles, about our temptations and our failures. Because as we see here with Abraham, God already knows these things about us, and he hasn't given up on us. 
A book I was reading this past week asked a question that I think really captures, it's a really good test of whether we are living and relating to one another out of this assurance of God's grace that we have. The, the question was this, it says, do you think of church more like the waiting room for a job interview or the waiting room at the hospital? I mean, when you think of coming to church, which image comes to mind for you? The job interview or the hospital waiting room? I mean, most of us have been in a job interview, so you know what it's like. You know, sitting in that waiting room, resume in hand, you're trying as hard as you possibly can to look competent, to look impressive. You're hiding your weaknesses. You're hiding any struggles that you might have for fear that it might stop you from getting this job that you so desperately want. But in the hospital waiting room, there's no point in hiding your weaknesses, right? Because you're all in the same boat. Everyone that is there is all sick and in need of help. And I found this image just really helpful and really convicting because as I thought about it, I realized how much I operate out of this job interview mentality. As I think of coming to church or going to home group, I think that I need to get myself all cleaned up. I need to put on my best face. My, my spiritual resume needs to be fixed up so that it's just right. When in reality, because of God's assurance, I can look to these places like the hospital waiting room, not hiding my struggles, not hiding my trials or my temptations, because we all have them. You see, the reality is that we're all in this hospital waiting room together, and the amazing thing is that God wants to meet us there with his grace. That's what, that's what Abraham is showing us. Abraham is showing us that we can come with our failures. We can come with our weaknesses, aware that God desires to bestow his grace upon us. There's no need for, for the, the faces that change as we drive up the church into the parking lot. We don't have to put our smiles on because God's assurance to us, to each of us, is that he accepts us as we are. He invites us to himself and he desires to bestow his grace on us. So as we gather together, as we, we gather here in our services, in our home groups, in, in youth groups, Bible studies, whatever it is, as you are getting together, look at these as opportunities to be as transparent as possible with, with your trials, with your temptations, and grow in your awareness of God's grace. We have assurance in our struggles because of God's gracious character. But there's a second reason we see here in this passage that we have assurance in our struggles because of God's commitment to his covenant. In this passage, God makes his commitment to his covenant as clear as possible as we see the phrase, I will, 13 times in his conversation with Abraham. Just read three verses with me and see how often God comes and says, I will. Starting in verse 6, God, talking to Abram, says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. He says, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. When you get home today, just in a little activity, read through this chapter and underline everywhere that you see this phrase, I will, and let it encourage your heart and your soul. 
Because you see, we have assurance of God's faithfulness in our struggles. Because as we see again, God's faithfulness towards us isn't based on us. God commits himself to his people and he says, I will be your God. God commits himself to his promises. He tells Abraham and Sarah that nations and kings will come from you. And nowhere do we read, I'll do my part if you do yours. No, God comes, and because of his commitment to his covenant, he promises to bless Abraham and Sarah beyond anything they deserve. Friends, don't we serve an amazing, an amazing God? In the midst of our struggles and our failures, we have absolute assurance that God is going to keep his promises. He isn't going to give up on us. So when you give in to temptation yet again, you visit that website you promised yourself that you would never go to again. When you find yourself sinfully judging others or responding in anger. When you're impatient with your kids or your coworkers. When you're fighting to trust God and once again find yourself giving in to anxiety and worry in the midst of the guilt and the shame and the fear and the anger. Let God's commitment to his covenant give you comfort and hope. He has promised that nothing will separate you from his love. He's never going to leave you or forsake you, but he's going to continue to pursue you as he remains faithful to finishing the good work that he began. And as he promised Abraham, he promises us that he is going to be our God and we will be his people. God's commitment to his, gov to his covenant gives us great assurance. But you see, God knows that in our struggles, that we're going to struggle to believe his promises, that we're going to struggle to have this assurance. So God in his grace gives us a sign. He gave Abraham and by extension all of the Israelites the sign of circumcision seen in verses 9 through 14. This was a sign that was constantly reminding Abraham and the entire community of God's promises to them. I mean, just think about it. In a group as large as the Israelites, I'm sure that not a week went by that not a baby was being circumcised. And this ritual, this act was done, was meant to give them assurance, was meant to be a reminder of God's great promises to them. Here in, in our passage under the Old Covenant, we see that God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. And us today, as members of this New Covenant community, God has given us the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these are very meaningful signs, uh, some, or they're called sacraments sometimes, that Jesus has given to his church. And they are great, great means of assurance for our hearts. You see, baptism identifies us with Jesus and God's, and God's covenant people. It's a sign that by faith in the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that we've been forgiven of our sins, that we've been united with Christ. And like circumcision, our baptism is something that we can look back to in the midst of our struggling and our failures for assurance. Assurance that God's initial grace towards us and the promise of his commitment to us. That's why in, in, in baptisms, you commonly hear the call to others to remember your baptisms. I think I said that a couple weeks ago as we had the baptisms, because those are such meaningful events in our lives that, that are just stones for us to look back to, to remember our baptism, to remember God's great work of grace. So if you are here and you are struggling this morning, hear God's call to look back to your baptism and receive the assurance that God who began a good work in you 
will complete it. And the second sign that Jesus gives to us is the Lord's Supper. Unlike baptism, which happens once, normally at the beginning of our Christian life, the Lord's Supper is something that we do throughout our Christian life. I mean, the New Testament doesn't explicitly say how often we are to do it. It just says, do this, as, it just says as often as you do this. So, so there's freedom here. But I am so grateful that here at Grace Church that we take the Lord's Supper almost every week because it's such a needful and important practice, at least for me personally. Because one of the primary things that God is doing as we take the bread and the cup in the cup is assuring our hearts once again. It's assuring our hearts of the wonderful assurance that we have in Jesus. The bread and the cup, they remind us that our standing before God, it's not based on us, who we are, what we've done, or what we haven't done, but it's solely based on Jesus. And oh, how I regularly need to hear this. I know I've shared this quote before about the Lord's Supper, but I just wanted to share it again because I find it so helpful for the way that I'm tempted to think about the Lord's Supper. One pastor has said that the Lord's Supper is not a prize for the perfect, but powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. So is that how you, how you think about the Lord's Supper here? The Lord's Supper, it's not a prize for the perfect. It's not something to be gained if you've had a good week. But the Lord's Supper is powerful medicine. It is such sweet nourishment for our souls when we are need, when we are weak and in need of God's reminder of who he is to us once again. So as we, gather to each, as we gather together each Sunday in this hospital waiting room, the Lord's Supper, along with everything else that we do, is powerful medicine for our weak souls in need of God's assurance. These are God's signs to us of his commitment to his covenant. In just a few minutes, we're going to close our service by taking the Lord's Supper together, receiving the sign of God's assurance. But before we do, I just want to briefly speak to those of you who are here who might not consider themselves a Christian. First off, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. And I hope that this morning as you've been here that God has been at work in your heart, completely removing any sort of thought that for you to be able to come to Jesus, that you have to get your act together. There's a song that we, we sing here often. It says, the only thing that God requires of us is for us to feel our need of him. So this morning, I hope that God, by his spirit, is, is increasing in you this, this feeling of this needing for him because, friends, we need him. All of us here, whether you've trusted in Christ or not, we need Jesus and we need, we can't live without this assurance of God's presence of God's promises to us, the fact and the reminders that he is not giving up on us no matter what we do. What I'd like to do now before we partake the elements, before the ushers come, is pray for all of our hearts that this morning as we think through this passage, as we come, as we take the bread and the cup, that they would be fresh reminders to us of God's assurance. And if you're here and you have yet to trust in Christ this morning, we would just ask that you would take Christ, that you would receive his grace, that you would hear again his promises to you and take Christ. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your, Lord, really your scandalous grace that we see here in the life of Abraham, because that's a story that's true in all of our lives. 
Father, we thank you for your grace that comes to us when we are at the bottom, that meets us, that encourages our souls. Father, I pray for for any here who might not know you. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Lord, that you would draw many to yourself. Lord, that you would grant this assurance of, of who you are, Lord, for all those who trust in you. And Lord, for all of us who are here who trust in you, Lord, may you increase our faith. Lord, may you feed us. Lord, may we feed on Christ and all his benefits in this Lord's Supper. May we have great assurance. Amen. Well, as I've, as I've mentioned here, for all those who have trusted in Christ, I want to invite you to come forward to the table and to receive the bread and the cup. These are reminders of the assurance that we have in the midst of our struggles and failures that God isn't giving up on us, but he's going to remain lovingly committed to each of us because of Jesus. getting ready there but on the night but because on the night